following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. My wife was, um, my wife Molly, uh, many of you know her, she was particularly excited when we started the series of Judges. Uh, It's her favorite book in the Bible, one of her favorite books, one of my favorite books too, because of all of the really great stories. Um, Personally, I'm looking forward to when we get to Samson, Uh, Reuben's alluded to this already, Uh, the part where he takes down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, doesn't say how he got the jawbone of the donkey, but your imagination just goes wild on that one. Good stories, great stories. But before we get to all of that, we start in what really is the business end of the book of Judges. Right there at the beginning. Uh, Last week, uh, Reuben looked at chapter 1, which was actually chapter 1 plus a little bit of chapter 2. He stole some of my chapter, but whatever. We'll we'll let him get away with that. Uh, And it starts with this this chapter, this passage, starts with the death of Joshua. And then it tells a story about all of the... um, Israelites going out and claiming their lands and, and trying, going through battles and all of that sort of stuff. And it mainly talks about how they failed to get rid of everybody in the land and how they became a, a negative influence on their spirituality. Uh, and then chapter 1 ends with God kind of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, fine, if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to do what I ask you to do, I'm just going to leave all of the people in there. I'm going to leave the the native tribes in there. They are going to be a thorn in your side. That's the way you want it. And then we come to chapter 2. And we start in verse 6. And I'm going to read this to you now. And I'm actually going to spill out into chapter 3 as well. So so there. All right, chapter 2, verse 6. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up. Otherwise, it is up on the screen. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all of the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, 
The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out once at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all of those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not ex- had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in Lebanon mountains, from Mount Baal Hermon to Mount Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which, they, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Right, so we begin chapter 2 in the second passage, and immediately we see that Joshua dies again, uh, which is, (laughs) poor guy, (laughs) he's had a bit of a bad run of it so far in this book. But what this tells me is we've got a little bit of a mimicking going on here between the second chapter and the first chapter and structure. They both start pinpointing the death of Joshua as the beginning, and then they both tell the story of the failure of the people of Israel. In this case, we we see examples of how they followed other gods, and they worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And then when God came in and saved them, they didn't last very long, and they went and they worshipped other people again. And then, as it did in chapter 1, it ends with God throwing his hands up in frustration and disgust at his people and saying, fine, I'm going to leave these people. I'm not going to drive them out. And I'm going to leave them so that they will test you whether or not you will choose to follow me or not. Spoiler alert, they choose not most of the time. This mirrored structure kind of tells me that the first two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of what we've looked at so far, kind of act as a bit of a backdrop or a bit of an introduction or foundation for the rest of the book. So as we go out into the cool stories of all of the judges and, and all of the fantastic stuff they do and all of this back and forth, I think the intention is that we read those stories with, this, with these first two chapters kind of milling in the background. They kind of set the backdrop, if you will, the, the staging for the rest of the stories. And when we read the rest of the stories, we have this in mind, and it, it changes the way that we see the stories. It changes the way that we look at who are the villains, Who are the heroes? All of this is affected by these first two chapters. Now, I'm not going to cover a lot of actually what's in chapter two, because I think Reuben's introductory message a a couple of weeks ago covers a lot of that really well. Now, if you didn't get a chance to hear that, jump on the podcast. Uh, It's up there, right, Reuben? So you can jump on that and have a listen. It's really good. But as I read this chapter, there is one thing that just jumped out, jumped out right from the beginning when I first read it, and it just hits me really strong. And that's not so much that the people turned away from God. 
Okay, that's disappointing, but let's be honest, not that surprising. But what is surprising to me is how quickly it happens. Have a look in in verse 10 uh, uh, again. It says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, this is Joshua's generation, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in, in, uh, in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Then have a look in verse 19. When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. So if I'm reading this right, it seems like while the judge is alive, while the leader is alive, everything's all good. People are following God, they're choosing right instead of wrong, and everyone's happy. But as soon as the influence of the leader is gone, as soon as that leader dies, it's like all of their faith disappears, just dissipates into nothing, and they go off and they follow evil ways. Why? Why is that? Why is their faith disappearing so quickly? And the reason I ask this question is because I look around at my country and I'm seeing an alarmingly similar situation. By the way, my country is New Zealand, not America. Pay no attention to the accent, okay? That's my wife's fault. All right. But as I look around New Zealand, I'm seeing a very similar situation. I'm seeing a faith in, in Christianity in absolute freefall. From the fact the 50s and 60s, it's gone down from like, everyone went to church. It was just part of life. That was just what people did. To now where as little as 3 to 10% can be bothered getting up on a Sunday morning. And I cringe to wonder how many of those 3 to 10% are my generation or younger. And so I ask of us, what I ask of the Israelites living 3,500 years ago. What the heck is going on? What is going on here? Something is happening between the generations. Or more to the point, something is not happening between the generations. Look at verse 10 again. After Joshua died, the generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. It seems like the story or at least the passion behind the story, is not getting passed down to the next generation. Let's think about this another way. Uh, This last Thursday, Anzac Day, you know, nice national holiday and everything. How many of you went to a dawn parade or or a ceremony or anything like that? A few of you, good. I didn't, uh, and I didn't get a poppy. I'm kind of a a bad person for that. But I I would say, even if you didn't do any of those things, Almost everybody who has grown up in New Zealand knows the story of the Anzacs, right? I mean, how many of you feel kind of this welling of pride when you think about those boys charging up the hill into gunfire? I mean, how many of you are a little mad at the Brits for shelling those boys on Chanuk Bear that time? How many of us as Kiwis, if one of these guys walked into the bar, would be the first to go and buy him a beer? There is a deep sense of not just knowing what happened, but a connection and a camaraderie with those Anzac troops, right? Which is a little strange because none of us were there. None of us saw it happen. My parents weren't there. My grandparents weren't there. 
It's been, I mean, we're looking at, what, 100 years nearly since the event. It's been 70 years since we've had any kind of wide-scale involvement in any war. So why is it so important to us? I heard a recent poll that said that 60% of Kiwis consider Anzac Day to be more important than Waitangi Day, our national holiday. Why? We claim Anzac Day as part of not just our history, but our identity as Kiwis, don't we? It's part of who we are. It's just like the Rainbow Warrior or Aussie underarm bowlers, neither of which I saw or has any personal implication for me, but it's part of who I am. So what's going on here? If we weren't there, why do we care so much? Because from the time that we were kids, it was impressed upon us by our parents, by our school, by the media. It became known to us from day dot that to be a Kiwi is to be an Anzac. It's just part of who we are. It's just been passed down to us, this legacy, it is ours. And here's the thing. Whatever is important, whatever is truly important to any culture will be passed down from generation to generation. It will just happen because it's important. So it would seem that for the Israelites living in Israel 3,500 years ago, it just wasn't that important to them. And I fear it may not be that important to us as well. So how does this affect us? Well, I hope that's obvious. <laughs> I'm hoping that the story of Christian faith is important to us and that we at least want this to be continued on past our generation. Unfortunately, the statistics in New Zealand seem to paint a very different picture. I was struck by what Mark said about this nation glorifying God, but I wonder how much of it actually does, you know? Not, not as much as we would like. So what do we do with this? How do we do this? How do we better pass our faith down from generation to generation? Not just to those who don't believe, not just in an evangelistic sense, but also to those among us who do believe. How do we pass our faith on to those who are in our congregation? Surely we understand that simply going to church does not a Christian make. Surely we understand that a young Christian does not automatically become an adult Christian. Input is required, right? So how can we input? How can we stem the tide of what Reuben so eloquently called the canonization of the church? Especially now with all of these negative influences coming in, how do we preserve our faith? I propose that we look back to the time of the judges. Not so much to see what they did well, but perhaps to see what they should have done well. What is it that God had envisioned back then for them to do to pass on their faith from generation to generation? What should the Israelites have been doing back then? And how can we relate that uh, to where we are now? I believe there are three avenues that um, God saw His people passing His faith down. At least three, there could be more, but three that I want to point out. Number one, and these will be up on the screen. The, the first one is the Levites. 
Okay, so from right, the, right from the beginning, when the people first arrived in the land of Israel, they divided it up amongst the 12 tribes, each got their own different lands, and, and Reuben had a map up last week showing all of that. But there was one tribe that God took for himself, and he said, this one tribe is mine. They're not going to get any land other than a few cities here and there. But what they're going to do is they're going to be dedicated to working in and supporting the temple, which was the place where God came to meet the people. And so their job was to, was to be priests. They were to act as the conduit between God and man. They were to look after the temple physically, make sure it all was um, shipshape and everything was great. But they were to make sacrifices for the people. They were to help the people worship God. It was their job to essentially keep God in front of the people at all times. And it makes me wonder how, but maybe if they had done their job a little bit better, and it's hard to kind of judge them specifically, but maybe we would have seen a better faith response from the people if the, if the Levites were keeping God in front of them at all times. But that, of course, was the Old Testament. Right? I mean, when Jesus comes along, he does away with the need for the temple because he is the person in which, in his presence, God is meeting the people. It's his existence that is the temple. And so, you know, when he goes and he brings the Holy Spirit, he sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God meeting the people, right? But all of us. So the Holy Spirit, God, comes into anybody who would claim to be a follower of him. Anyone who, who follows Jesus gets a piece of God inside of them. So there's no need for the temple, so there's no need for priests, right? Well, wrong, actually, as it turns out. Have a listen to what Peter, one of the authors of the New Testament, um, says when he is talking to the Christians of his day. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So now we have all taken on the role of the Levites. We have all taken on this role of priest. And that means we shoulder the responsibility of coming alongside each other and helping each other grow closer to God. We are ambassadors to those who don't believe, but we are also priests to those who do. We help each other worship. We help each other make right the wrongs in our lives. It is our job together as a community to keep God in front of each other at all times. We are priests. Second one, a more powerful method God gave his people of remembering him was this myriad of festivals and feasts that they would have that's littered throughout the, the calendar year. And the idea with this is that everybody would stop working for usually about a week. They would get a whole bunch of food together. And they would eat, and they would drink, and they would chat, and they would tell stories about the wonderful miracles that God had done for them. And they would have all of this time together, and they would rest, and it would just be this amazing time. Yet it seems, if you take a quick survey through uh, the Bible, it seems that the people of God were not so good at keeping up with these festivals. We see in several places they had kind of gotten out of the habit. In fact, some of them they may have never done. Maybe they thought it was, there were too many of them. I don't know. Maybe they thought they couldn't take a week off work in order to just sit around and talk about God. But whatever the reason, I feel like that this negligence denied the people an important opportunity to stop 
to stop and to remember who God was and what he had done for them. Which if you remember verse 10 was exactly the problem that they had. They neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So what about us? We certainly could use a stop every now and then, couldn't we? May 11th, huh? We've got that um, retreat coming up. Maybe we should get involved in that. But we have a lot of other festivals as well. Christmas, Easter, come to mind. Or this. Every Sunday, we have a festival to come and stop and remember who God is and what He's done for us. But specifically, there's another one which I want to focus on. One where we can specifically remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Communion. This is our festival. And it can be such a powerful time of renewing our faith. And we're going to do this now, actually, right in the middle of the message. I'm not done yet, sorry to say. Uh, but we're going to take some time now to take communion, to, to take part in this festival. Um, to the sides, we've got some tables with crackers and juice on it. Now, when Jesus first introduced communion, he did it during an important Jewish festival called Passover. Um, and, and this was, Passover was actually a story that was pretty fresh to the people in Judges, who had just arrived in the land of Canaan. Um, in fact, Joshua, their fearless leader, had lived through the events of the Passover. So he was, he was really up to play on this one. And in this story, God had taken the people out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them powerfully from slavery. And he forged them into a new nation. And this new nation was his prized possession. They were his, the nation of Israel. And so this feast of Passover told the story. And as they would eat the feast, they would use the different bits to tell the story of what had happened. The lamb that was sacrificed to show the angel of darkness who to pass over. The bitter herbs, the flat bread, the wine. All of this was used to tell the story. Well, as Jesus was getting ready to go and die on the cross, he took this festival and he made it about himself. He knew that he was going to take this people, this future people, including us. He was going to rescue them powerfully from slavery, just like God had done. He was going to galvanize them into a new nation, the kingdom of God. And they were going to become a special possession. But he knew this was going to take sacrifice. He knew that his body was going to be torn apart in order to make this happen. So he looked out on the table, he grabbed a piece of the flatbread, and he ripped it in half. And he says, you know what, this is me. This is my body. And he passed it around to his followers who were with him. He says, eat it. Eat this. Eat me. Because what I'm doing is for you. Eat the sacrifice that I'm making. Consume it. Make it part of yourself as your act of accepting what I have done. And he knew that this before the night had passed, his blood would flow. But he knew that his flowing blood was actually going to be what saved these people. By his blood flowing, they would be cleansed. So he took a cup full of wine. And he says, you know what? This is my blood. And I pour it out for you. So here, take, drink it. Drink it into yourselves. Because it is my blood that is going to save you. Like a cosmic... Mycidinal syrup 
You take it into yourselves. And then he told his followers, remember this. Every time you get together and have this meal, remember this. When Jesus took the festival of Passover and made it about himself, he took a very complicated feast and he made it incredibly simple. I believe he made it incredibly simple so that we could take it anytime, with anyone, anywhere. So I'm going to suggest something pretty crazy here. And uh, please don't chase me off the stage, but I'm going to suggest that you can actually take communion outside of church. It's true. It is possible for you to gather your family together on a Wednesday night of all times and share the sacred meal together and to remember what Jesus has done together as you eat a normal meal. You don't even need crackers and juice, guys. I'm serious. This is, this is crazy stuff. You don't need a little wafer and a little cup of juice to celebrate communion. Just a remembrance of what God has done. Yet imagine, imagine the power of of recognizing the, the God of the universe coming and dying for our sins. Eternity opened up before us. Imagine the power of, of celebrating all of that in the intimacy of a family dinner. What a legacy to pass on. Now, we've talked about festivals and how they're great ways to share stories um, of what God has done. We've talked about the Levites, priests, us, as we help each other. But I've saved the best for last. And I've saved God's most effective method for last. Deuteronomy has a famous passage that we read quite often in churches, and we've read out here many times. And it outlines what I believe to be God's primary way of passing faith down from generation to generation. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 to 9. God says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them while you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Nothing has changed. I truly believe that God is putting the, has put the passing down of our faith as one of, on the job description of modern parenthood. As parents, it is our job to teach, to pass on. And that's why we take baby dedications so seriously. It's not just something that we do, but this is a chance to affirm the role of parenthood. We believe, this is, why, this is why Biffy spends so much of her time, pours her soul into the work of working with children and families here. Because we want to equip families to be the spiritual mentors of their children, to help them pass down, help you pass your faith down, help me pass my faith down to my boys. Because the research is, is pretty conclusive on this that children will most likely take on the spirituality of their parents, irregardless of what that spirituality is, and irregardless of outside influences, which, of course, is not going to stop us from trying. But the best thing that we can do is to be godly parents and to pass that down to our children. But actually, I'm wrong in saying that nothing has changed, because I believe, actually, the scope of this has changed a little bit. If we look back into the uh, Israeli, Israelite camp, 
back in the day here, all of the, the camp would have been families of faith. They, they were all just families. Everyone, in a sense, believed. They didn't necessarily follow it up, and, and there's a lot of negativeness on, around that. But the way that the Levites worked and the way that families worked is that they had an assumption of faith. And so if the, jo- if the parents were doing their jobs correctly, this job's done, it's taken care of, faith is passed down. But we live in a different world, don't we? We live in a world with many different faiths, many different backgrounds, many different uh, worldviews. It is not true to say that everybody has had parents who are even able to pass faith down to them. In fact, we are entering a generation now, we're entering a time where many of the kids are growing up without parents or grandparents who have faith. There is no one to pass that down to them. And this was true in the early church as well, when the Gentile world, the Greeks and other cultures were brought into the Christian fold. They didn't have any background. They didn't have parents to pass that faith down to them. So what you find happening in the early church is not so much of a made up of families, but it was turning into a family itself. The early church took on the function of family. And so the older Christians in the church became spiritual parents to the younger Christians in the church. You see this all throughout the Bible. Paul talks about his spiritual sons. We are described as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. And so I think that is true of this congregation as well. And we can take on the role of spiritual parents or spiritual children for each other which is why I believe that mentoring is so important. And I think that we should be taking on this role as much as we can to help those who don't necessarily have parents of faith. Reuben has mentioned to me there's an opportunity at the moment for for people, especially guys, to get involved mentoring intermediate and high school kids. What a great age to step in and to be a spiritual parent. If there's something that you want to do, I highly recommend that. Just uh, get in touch with the office and, and they'll point you in the right direction for that. But I want to take a moment within this topic of mentoring to dive a little deeper and, and to take this kind of spiritual parenting to a new level. Because one of the things that popped up to me when I first read um, Judges and when I first read about this lack of passing faith down was that... Um, as soon as Joshua's generation, we talked about this, as soon as Joshua died and his generation died, faith just fizzled, right? Everything just kind of fell apart. Yet the same thing did not happen when Moses died 50 years previous. When Moses died, everything was fine. There was a, there was a transition, it was seamless, and everyone was still following God. Everything was great. What's the difference? Well, there are quite a few differences, I think, but I think the one thing that strikes me is that Moses had spent the previous 40 years developing his successor. 40 years. During the entire wilderness experience, Moses was bringing Joshua along so that when he died, there was not much change at all. Joshua just stepped up. The people still had an inspiration to follow and a leader to follow, and they did. Now, fast forward 50 years to when Joshua dies. Can anyone tell me Joshua's successor? Exactly. He didn't have one, and everything fell apart. Now, I'm going to give Joshua a pass here, 
Because the way that God seemed to set up the structure of leadership in, in Israel was, was that he was going to be their leader. God was their leader, and they didn't need a person to be their leader, which is why the judges were, were temporary. God wanted to be their king. So it may have been that God told Joshua not to worry about developing or mentoring someone else. Okay, fine. But we don't get that past, do we? Not quite so much. Because when Jesus comes along and sets his church up, he does set up a very definitive leadership structure. At first, it starts with the apostles. And they go out and then they start developing their own leaders or deacons to help them. And then as churches start sprouting up throughout the world, they are appointed elders to be the spiritual leaders of the people, right? This is the leadership structure that we follow here at Shaw. And this is the leadership structure that we were attempting to follow down at ReChurch as well, and that's still building. But how does an elder become an elder? When Paul talked to Timothy about appointing elders, he said that they need to be appointed based on their spiritual integrity, their leadership prowess, their ability to teach. But how do they get to that point? By themselves? Almost certainly not. In fact, I don't know of any leader who is not at least some point developed and, and influenced by someone else. I look back, I can name at least 10 people off the top of my head who have taken the time to invest in me and in my leadership, specifically in my leadership. 10. And I'm not done. We face a very real problem in New Zealand with faith continuation, don't we? There's a very real issue. Who among our young people, who among my generation and younger, is ready to step up and take the mantle of leadership when the older leaders step down? Who among our young people is ready to step out now into a world that is increasingly hostile, that increasingly thinks the church is a joke? Who are going to be the ones to take the flag of Christianity out into that world to step up and to show them what we're really made of and what we really believe in? Who is going to do that? Who are the Pauls? Who are the Peters? Who are the Joshuas that are ready to step out and make this happen? Or more importantly, who are the ones who are taking the time to prepare these leaders? Who are the Barnabases? In our congregation. This is, this is not exclusively Reuben's responsibility or mine. It's not a staff responsibility. I mean, honestly, I need some more input myself. I'm not going to speak for Reuben. I'm sure he's perfect. But as, as young leaders, we still need mentoring ourselves. See, what I have in front of me here, in the seats in front of me, in this room, is an embarrassment of riches, an embarrassment of riches of young people who are ready to be developed to go out and to be those leaders, and an embarrassment of older Christians who are ready to give their experience, to give their wisdom, and to teach. What do you think we should be doing with that? Because let me tell you something. A vast majority of churches in this country cannot develop younger leaders simply because they don't exist in their congregations. There are a good number of churches that face extinction in the next decade or two, not because their people lack interest, because they are literally dying out. I don't mean that to be mean. 
But we need to address this in this country. We need to address the issue that if we don't develop new leaders, how will we continue? And if this congregation, if churches like this one that are alive and vibrant, if it doesn't happen here, where will it happen? Where? I think it's on us to be involved in both ends, to be ready to be led and to lead. We are the ones. And I don't mean this in a prideful way. I don't mean this in a, hey, check you guys out. You're awesome. I mean this in a, this is what God has done here. He has built up this congregation. He has gathered his riches, his treasures together so that we can do this. And then we can spread that out into this country and beyond. I want to end there with that challenge kind of lingering in the air. As always, if you would like some prayer, if you'd like to respond in this in any way, there's some, some chairs up front. There'll be some people to pray for you. They really want to pray for you. They're not scary. It's not intimidating. Just people who care. So that's open to you. But for the rest of you, I want you to take some time, maybe over lunchtime, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week. Ask yourselves, what do you think? Ask God, what role do you play in the future of faith in New Zealand? Each and every one of you. We're not looking to someone else to fix this. What role do you play? Are you a leader that just needs someone to bring them along? Are you one who needs to bring along a leader? Or do you just need to take some of these methods of passing faith down and start implementing in your lives, in your families, in your workplace, in your congregation, to be priests for each other, to, to celebrate in festivals with each other, to develop and mentor each other? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for churches like Shore. I've been a part of this church since I was 13. I've been one of the leaders that they have developed. I thank you for that. I thank you for the richness in, in, in the life experience, the spiritual maturity that exists here, that is developed every day through Reuben's preaching, through, through life groups, through all of this stuff. You have a solid church, a solid community of people here, Lord, that is reaching out in the community, and that's great. But Lord, help us as part of this community to take on the mantle of your future. To, to identify, to develop, to help bring along people who are going to go out and take this further, to step in our place, or to go out in the world and to create new communities like this one. Give us the strength. Tell us. Pick us out. Tap us on the shoulder. Tell us what we need to do, Lord. Ultimately, Lord, we just thank you that we have a faith to pass down and that you have done so much for us. We have an eternal future. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.